Please do take a seat right where you are. Amazing. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. It's so great to worship together. And um, welcome to you if you've just joined us in the last few minutes. Um, this is the Theology Summer School. It's great to have you here uh, tonight. I'm going to introduce our speaker tonight, who is Nick Crawley. Uh, Nick is uh, married to Lucy, and they have four boys. Uh, they live in Bristol, and Nick, Nick was part of starting Crossnet Church uh, back in 2004. Is that right, Nick? 2004? And Nick has been uh, ordained in the Church of England, leading Anglican churches in London and Zimbabwe, and uh, back here in Bristol for around 35 years. So uh, Nick has also, as part of his ministry, started a website called Bible for Life, which you have cards for on your seats, and there's um, sort of banners here each side. Uh, So Nick, we're delighted that you're here tonight. Um, And I'm just going to pray for you really quickly as as, as you start. Lord God, we thank you for Nick. Thank you for bringing him here. Thank you for uh, his ministry and his life. And we pray now for him as he speaks to us. That you'd speak through him and you'd speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's welcome Nick, shall we? Okay. Yes, that sounds a bit better. Great. Uh, so it's, it's good to be here. And this is a first in several ways. So anyway, we're here. <laughs> um, let me read something that uh, I came across this, this, this afternoon. This was from uh, a magazine talking about the church in Iran. And this man says this. Once I started, I couldn't stop. In a few days, I had read the entire New Testament. I felt like I had found a part of me that was missing. It almost felt like part of me. In Jesus, I saw the kindness and love that I had wanted for so many years. In my suffering, I encountered the suffering Lord. And he goes on to talk about how the Bible, uh, the influence of the Bible just grew in his life. And instead of taking his life in suicide, which is what he was about to do, um, his life is completely taken over. And I I'm, want to communicate uh, tonight, I, I want to communicate something of my own uh, love for the Bible and why it is such an important uh, document and how it can enrich and inform your life and particularly your discipleship. And that's where we're going. It's a little bit, uh, 45 minutes on introducing the Bible to what I know is a very uh, large cross range of people, there would be some here, who I understand you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be saying that you're believers, but you're interested, and that's great that you're here, and I hope I'll be able to uh, speak in a way which can relate to you. But there are other people here who may well have, uh, probably a number of you have already got theology degrees, perhaps even <coughs> MAs or even PhDs. So anyway, so the big cross-section, and I, I, I just acknowledge that at the beginning, and I've got quite a difficult task, because we've got to move over a quite a large section, and I don't want to leave people behind, I don't want to go too far ahead, I don't want to, you can see the extremes that I don't want to sort of hit. So I'm going to do my best, and um, I'm going to look at topics like this, so that you know where I'm, I'm going. What the Bible is, what is it? Uh, what, it's, what is it about? How to handle biblical interpretation? We're going to look quite a lot at that. Um, how Jesus handled the scripture. 
how to engage with Scripture, I'm going to show you the website I've, I've been working out, which has taken the last um, about 15 years of my life. And then we've got some uh, time for questions and answers. So let's start, and I hope this is okay for, for those of you who, uh, who've done a lot of work on this already, that you'll understand. I want to just ask the very simple question, what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is actually a library. In fact, it's the, what the word means. It's 66 documents. It's divided into two parts. There's the, what's called the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books and or documents and the New Testament has 27. In fact, today, the, the names that are usually used or more often used now is that we talk about the Hebrew Bible referring to the first 39 documents and then there's the uh, New Testament or sometimes called the Second Testament. Um, uh, it's a Bible that's just been uh, produced by a man called Scott McKnight and uh, he's actually entitled it the Second Testament. We might say a little bit more about that later on. And again, just to run through, I'm very aware, if you, if you open your Bible, and I, hope, uh, I think you've got some in front of you, if you, if you turn to the index, um, it looks pretty terrible, really. You look at it and you think, what on earth is going on? Um, I mean, what on earth is two chronicles? Oh, you know, who's Habakkuk? <laughs> you know? And you may be in that situation. You may look at it and you think, this is just way, way out of my comfort zone. I don't know what to do. And you open up, um, you know, here's a guy called Ezekiel. That's a bit interesting. I wonder what he's up to. And you open him up and you see these long chapters and he writes in a particular style. And you may think, that's just not where I'm at. I really understand that, and I want to try and help you to see how actually this engagement with these different authors can be absolutely phenomenal, and I really mean that. It, it, it can be just staggering. And you might say, I might say an odd thing to say at the beginning of a talk like this, but there are times when I've been literally in tears reading scripture. There's a power about it. When I was a boy, my father gathered us around the breakfast table in Margate. And we would start the day by he would read a portion of scripture. I, was, I wasn't even 10 years old. But as he read it over those years, something in my young heart realized I was listening to stories about a man who is completely different from anybody else I'd ever met. And although there were many questions in my mind, and it's always good to ask questions, something in me realized this was different. I can't really explain what happened, but there was, that was the start of a profound uh, journey. And if you look at the index, it looks massive. And you think, I can't, I don't even know where to start here. <laughs> but actually it breaks down into some very good subsections. You've got five books to start with, which are called the Pentateuch. They're books of Moses. They're referred to in that way. And they're basically narrative. They're basically story. They talk about religious law. 
And then there are 12 history books. You see, the Bible is, is linked in very, very closely with the history of the Jews. I mean, it's, they two go together. And the actual history of what happened is tied into the scriptures, and both inform the other. And uh, you've got three books that the, the first five books describe the, 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 the history of Israel right up to the point where they, they came, they were just about to move into what's referred to as the promised land. And then you've got three books of them being in the promised land before the monarchy, six books about the king, which the leading king was King David, you've probably heard of him, and then there are three books, and that all led into, after the six books, leads to the exile, and then you've got three books afterwards. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And so you've got a total of 12 history books. Now that's a bit more manageable altogether. Once you get the subsections worked out, it's a little bit, it's not quite so frightening. And then there are five books which are sometimes referred to as wisdom literature. And they're all about literally wisdom and poetry and the Psalms are there and, and it's all about the business of living on this earth. And they look at it from different views and different perspectives. And then you've got... Um, it's a bit of, it depends how you count this, but you've either got four, ma- well, you've got four major prophets, um, pro- prophets, big prophets, really key ones, and uh, the main one is Isaiah, and Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah who was going to come. And then Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah uh, prophesied about the exile from different places, and Daniel also prophesied. They're the big ones. And then you've got a whole flood of, of minor ones. You've also got, uh, Jeremiah did too. There's another one called Lamentations, which tucked in there. And then you've got uh, 12 uh, minor prophets. And it's an exaggeration to say this, but each of the uh, minor prophets basically has one message. And they, they, they address one feature of God. So, for example, Amos is the prophet of justice. Hosea is the prophet of God's love. Zechariah is the prophet of the coming of the day of the Lord, the day when the God comes in, his activity, when he breaks into our lives, does something really special in a nation or even in our lives. And if you look at it like that, the whole thing becomes much more manageable if you can navigate your way around. And then in the New Testament, which incidentally is written in a different language, that doesn't help. You've got two languages. You've got Hebrew and with Aramaic in the first part, and you've got Greek in the second part. And that means you've got two different languages to learn, if you're going to really get into it in depth. And then you've got, uh, you've got four Gospels, four accounts of Jesus' life. You've got the book of Acts, which tells the story of the, uh, uh, of the church, the early church. And then you've got 13 letters by Paul, who was the great church planter. And then you've got a number of other, about nine other letters, which sort of chip in in different ways. And again, the reason I'm running through all this is simply so that you can see that they all subdivide. And when you see the subdivisions, then you can look at each one and you can think, ah, just a moment, you can study each one and see what's going on. And the whole thing becomes much less intimidating. So it's good to uh, just have that grasp. The the book, uh, the the Bible was written over something like 1,500 years. It was written in different languages. It was written by very, very different people. So some people, like Amos, was a shepherd. Another one was a statesman. There were various kings who wrote. There were a lot of prophets who wrote. 
And then there were people like Paul who planted churches and helped the young church um, uh, find its identity and the, and the way forward and see what was going on and how to, how to work with God. And the reason I mention all these things is just that it, when we come to the Bible, it is a complicated book. It requires our intelligence. It requires our thinking. And one of the things we're going to do tonight is I want to push you a bit, especially towards the end, and give you the opportunity to think about one or two quite testing things. And I'm going to show you how there's some good answers to those things. I don't want to intimidate you at all, but uh, that's where we're going. Now, what on earth is the Bible about? What is it about? Well, probably the simplest answer is it's about God. But a deeper answer would be that it's about God's work of salvation. God coming to humanity and saving us from the mess we're in. That's the story of the Bible. That's what it's about. Or if you, you, you may have come across the Bible Project, which is a brilliant organization producing lots of videos. and They're really good. And the guy who runs it, Tim Mackey, I, he, my wife and I know him, and we've, we've done quite a lot of work in different ways with him. And uh, I love the way, I, I, I like his work enormously. And um, he, he, he uses this phrase, a unified story leading to Jesus. And that's exactly what the Bible is. Every part serves that purpose. Some of them in very, very different ways. Some of them from very strange angles. If we were writing a book today, we probably wouldn't write it like Job or some of these other things like Ecclesiastes. Very strange, but they're there because at a particular point it was really uh, important. And uh, it's a unified story leading to Jesus. But Jesus himself came proclaiming a message. He said, he came proclaiming this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That's what he did. He went around proclaiming that message. And to understand Jesus, we've got to take him at his word. You've got to say, okay, where did Jesus start? Well, Jesus starts with this message about a kingdom coming. And we've got everything he says is framed in that context. How do we handle biblical literature? Well, I'm delighted to say that um, it, it's a remarkable thing, really, this, but um, I don't think people appreciate just how much change there has been in the last few decades in the quality of our translations. The scholarship that goes into the meaning of words and you've got universities all the way around the world. You've got Bible schools. You've got people excelling in, in really uh, minuscule details. And the result has been that the quality of our translations is substantially better than it was, even when I was a boy. It has really changed, and we can, um, we can thank God uh, uh, for that. There are two things that happen. First of all, the meaning of English words change. Um, I was trying, desperately trying to think of an example. I couldn't think of one this afternoon. But, 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 but words we use change. And they're used differently as the decades go by. And, and thereby, we need to change. Our, our, our translations need to be up to date on this. And the second thing is, as I've already said, the academic excellence is improving all the time. So, for example, if you look, uh, people often ask me, well, you know, Nick, which, which uh, translation of the Bible do you think is most helpful? Which is the best? And a general answer I would give would be the new international version. 
if we had more time, we could go into this in more, more carefully, the, the benefits and the usefulness of different translations. But generally speaking, the NIV, the, the last edition is 2011. And I think it's excellent, and I strongly recommend it. Um, it's interesting, if you, if you, even with the NIV, there has been a, a, a development between the first production, which I think was edition 78, 1978. There was another one in 1984, and then the most recent one is 2011. And there is, this, because of all this, there's, there's better understanding. And that's, uh, that's helpful. It's really, really helpful. There's a lot, I, I, I want to go through these things, and the temptation for me at this point is to go into far too much detail on each of these points, and I hope I don't do that. But I do want to show you an example of, of the sort of depth of insight that we can taste and enjoy. When I was first studying the Bible, I was told, taught by godly people that um, it was really very embarrassing look at the, looking at the early chapters of Genesis, because you've got this story of... Um, of, of Abraham going down to Egypt and um, basically lying to Pharaoh and uh, the whole thing is embarrassing and then the story gets included twice. What were they doing? And then, we don't, it's absolutely dotty, you know, and then his son Isaac, he goes and does the same thing and nobody could understand what on earth was going on and so there was a sort of embarrassment and well, they obviously didn't realise what they were doing. Here we are, about 3,000 years later, and we, of course, we've sorted it out. We know what's going on. It's all very embarrassing, and it's a big muddle, and they really should have looked properly and sort of sorted it out and had the story once, not three times. That was the sort of thing I was taught. Nobody would take that view now. You see, supposing you and I were to go off across to the cinema near here, and we were to look at a... What's the guy's name um, in Mission Impossible? Tom, <laughs> Tom Chris <laughs> failed at my crucial moment. Uh, we go and see what a Tom Cruise movie. What's going to be in the Tom Cruise movie? There's going to be a car chase. There's going to be a big punch-up. There's going to be a shootout where, against all odds, Tom Cruise manages to sort of dive and shoot and kill five people all at once, where, very strangely, all the, all the baddies are shooting at him all the time, and all missing all the time, but Tom manages to hit them all down. And, of course, there's a woman, and there's a lovely romance, and etc. And these are all set scenes. If we go to a movie like that, we're going to expect those things. We're going to expect the goodies to win. And how strange if the, in Mission Impossible it was a total defeat. I mean, it just wouldn't work. Do you see, there's a, there's a style, there's a, a way we expect our stories to work. And after we've seen masses of stories, uh, films like this, we know, oh, well, these, they, you know, you, you leave the cinema, you walk back, well, you did that scene quite well, and here, I wasn't convinced by the actor at that point, and we talk like that because we're talking about the nuance of the story. And actually, that's exactly what's going on in the Bible. So when you have boy meets girl in the Genesis, in the early stories in the Bible, in the history stories, guess what happens? Where does boy meet girl? Anywhere? Boy meets girl at the well where you feed your camels. 
And if you start looking at it like that, you suddenly realize that the boy meets girl scenario keeps popping up. So the first leading story is Abraham's son, Isaac, and his, actually Abraham's servant goes and gets a wife for him, because that was the way it was done at that stage. And the whole story is told, and if you look more carefully, you begin to think, wow, this is, uh, you know, he's here, he's feeding his camels, and along comes uh, a young woman, and she's very beautiful, and etc., etc., and the whole thing develops. And then guess what happens? His son does the same thing. It's a different type of story. It happens in a different way, but it happens over the feeding the animal thing. And then you find Moses later on. He does the same thing, and he's out, and, and, and he meets his wife, as the, that is the sheep this time, and, and the, but it's the same idea. And then you see that what's actually happening is you study the text, and you look at the way these stories are told. You, instead of a whole lot of embarrassing stories where they're all shoved together, and the whole thing's a bit of a mess, and you think, oh, goodness me, why couldn't they possibly write it properly so that we can do it, understand it properly in the way we do today? You see, instead, as you listen more carefully, you see that these, each of these stories are told with unbelievable sophistication. And the way the words are put together and the people who, who, who are experts in these things, they, they, they can see and they can see the way the sentences are built and the way that the delay in the storytelling and the way that you build up to the climax and the, and the, the whole thing. And you find that the, <coughs> the story about um, the servant getting a wife for uh, Abraham's son Isaac is the sort of model and everything else is told in contrast to it. And, and you see that there's something much, much, much more sophisticated going on. Now, I've told that in detail, but I could give lots of examples of that sort of thing. The Bible is written, the Bible is an immensely sophisticated document. And it needs to be listened to carefully. And many, many times in my life, I've come across an issue, a passage, and I just think, oh, I don't know what is going on here. This is just a mess. All the wrong things about God are being said. How do we handle it? And that when you get to that point, the answer is not just to throw the whole thing in, walk away saying this is just a load of rubbish. The answer is to wrestle with it, is to listen, is to allow the text to be itself, to allow it to speak, and not just to throw it out. And I found again and again, as I do that, that some of the most incredible riches have come out. Sometimes it's taken me literally decades to find the answer or to find something which really answers. So again, I've spent a lot of time on that, but, but there's history, there's stories, there's religious laws, there's wisdom literature. I'm going to, we're going to look at one of the Psalms later on. And when the extraordinary thing about the Psalms is that it, they, 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 they verbalize deep emotion in the human being and they, they verbalize it with God they're statements of faith in a world of evil and they're uncomfortable some of them I look at some of them and I think wow you know, we could have left that one out <laughs> and yet there are others just full of beauty and wonder and just gentleness and very, very, very deeply moving. 
There are stories in the, in the history sections where you literally need, we literally need to read five or six chapters. Just read and read and read. And then there are other passages, such as in Proverbs, where you might just take one phrase, you might just take one verse, and you live in it for a day. And we need to use both those methods. There's the apocalyptic writing. Jesus himself used apocalyptic writing. When they were talking about the end of the world and God's big interventions, the Jews had a way of sort of going into hyperbole mode. And they would say, and the moon will turn to blood and the stars will fall down. And and it was a way of expressing God's intervention where everything would break out and change. And as I said, Jesus uses that. Many of the prophets use it. Daniel, there's quite a lot of that. In Revelation, there's a lot of that. It's a very sophisticated form of talking about how evil is going to be defeated. What God has planned will happen. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's very powerful. And then there are prophets. Lots of different types of prophets. Amos didn't even think he was a prophet. He says at one point, I'm not a prophet. And yet somehow he's in the book. <laughs> Because people looked at his life and said, oh, yes, you are. And, they, you know, and he's, he's recorded. And then there's the Gospels. You see, Matthew was a Jew writing about a Jewish Messiah to Jewish people. So what does he do? He writes in a completely Jewish way. The Jews, are, you know, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible is really important for them. So what does he do? He's always quoting. As it says here, as it says here, as it says there. He talks about the law and the Sabbath and these things that really, and the temple that are really valuable to the Jews because that's the way they thought. That was crucial to them. Whereas Luke, Luke is a Gentile talking about a Jewish Messiah to Gentiles. And he goes about it in a very different way. His value system on Jesus is, is, is different. He's emphasizing different points. They're telling the same stories, often, and not always the same stories. Sometimes Luke has a whole lot that Matthew doesn't have in all that. But, but you can see Luke, he's, he's, he's showing them, he's putting it across in a special way. And we need, to, we need to appreciate that. We're not going to get to the heart of it unless we, uh, unless we know that. And then there's this great uh, thing about um, uh, Paul's letters. You see, when I was young, and I love the people who taught me the Bible. I really do, and I thank God for them. And yet, they never taught me how to read the Bible. They told me I should, and some of them even checked up to see if I was. But actually, I wish they'd told me how. You see, if I write you a letter, it would be very odd if you only read little bits of it. Or if you, if you read a little sentence each day. I mean, I think, what, what a strange way to behave. If I write you a letter, you read the whole letter. You read it as a whole. You think of my context, and you think of your context, and the letter communicates into a context. And if we're going to read Philippians, or Ephesians, or uh, 1 Timothy, or these letters from Paul, written in very, very different situations at different stages in his life to people in different situations, it's not going to make much sense to us unless we know the context. But if we know the context, it will take on amazing life. 
And the application, what we do about it, will become very, very clear. And we need to work at this. We need to understand the situation. A very classic example would be the letter of Colossians, where Paul is writing to a bunch of people he's never met. He's in a situation. He's actually in prison. It's a very exciting new church plant. And if you're a church plant, you would have studied Colossians. It's got a lot about how to... How to um, uh, sorry, when I say if you're a church plant, what I mean is if you're involved with that. <laughs> it, it's got a lot in it. So, you know, feast in Colossians. Live in it. Go and just wallow in Colossians. And um, you see, I was taught to sort of, I was taught to use the Bible in two ways. You, you, it's like you rush, you get up in the morning and you, you sort of get uh, you're ready and you sort of rush into the orchard, grab a bit of fruit, rush out again and say, wow, I've had a good time with God. Well, well at least I prayed and read the Bible. But the Bible was never written to be read like that or understood like that. It was written to be read as a unit, to be, you understand this letter and you engage with it deeply and you feast on it and you let it minister to you and you, 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 and you listen and you go back again and you listen again and you listen and you read and you make notes and you think about the difficult things. I don't understand these verses here. I don't know what they're about. You, maybe you leave them for a while okay, just, and you keep on going and then suddenly and as you do it, the whole thing begins to take on a life and a character and you begin to think, oh, I can see exactly what's going on here. This guy Epaphras in, in Colossians, just amazing young person, young adult who had gone and started a church. And you just think, I, that guy, I wish I knew him. He'd be such an exciting guy to know. And the sort of descriptions, you get these little hints in there all the way of what's going on. And suddenly the whole thing, a letter written 2,000 years ago, suddenly has absolutely amazing sense today in 2023. Absolutely up to date. I hope I'm communicating some of the sort of passion and excitement that uh, I, um, uh, I, I love about the Bible. The Bible has had this astonishing influence on world history and continues to have. There's no sign of it abating. It may be a difficult book, but it's, it's worth really investing in. Jesus said... The most staggering statement, Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on a rock. And he goes on to say, the person who hears but doesn't put it into practice is like somebody who builds their house on the sand and it'll all fall down. If I said that, you would probably make sure that I was in the doctor's surgery before I went to bed tonight. If I said, you know, you are really lucky tonight listening to me because what I say tonight at St. Nick's, you're going to teach your children. You're going to, you know, I'm going to die, but, but you know, my teaching will go on for all, for thousands of years. You're going to, in fact, heaven is going to pass away and earth is going to pass away. But what you hear tonight, this evening, will never pass away. And you're, you're looking at me and smiling because I would be an absolute insane madman to say that. 
But that is exactly what Jesus said. Not once, but many times in different ways. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He spoke with authority. The Bible, um, the Bible is God revealing himself to us through the scriptures. It claims to be inspired. It is God breathed. And we see Jesus endorsing that very, very truth. We see Jesus making these staggering claims. We see Jesus understanding his own ministry in terms of what the scripture had said. So in Daniel, it talks about the Son of Man coming and bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And Jesus specifically understands his, his role. And he even uses those words. And when Peter says, uh, there's that conversation about the Messiah, you are the Messiah. Um, Peter, G G G and, and Peter says, P Jesus, <laughs> Jesus asks, who do, men, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus then says, basically, yes, I am, but you're not going to use that term. It's far too politically loaded. And if, you, if I run around calling myself the Messiah, I'm going to be killed in a matter of days. The Romans just knock me out full stop. So that's not, we're not going to do that. We're going to use the Son of Man term, which is what Daniel prophesied in, in, in Daniel chapter 7. I think that's the way we should understand it. Jesus then understands his whole death and his whole ministry of dying and his work in dying for the sins of the world in terms of what the Old Testament says. He affirms the Old Testament. He even, for him, the, the, the Bible is the final authority in all disputes. When he was tempted in the desert, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quoted scripture, he knew it, and he understood it, and he followed it through. To the Pharisees, the, the legalists, the people who were enforcing religious law and having very strict rules about the Sabbath and about all kinds of things like that, he said, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God. And he went on to describe how they would basically bypass their responsibility for looking after their elderly parents. And they did it, and they tried to justify it. To the other people at the other end of the religious spectrum, the Sadducees, who, who basically were, were very light on the... Uh, uh, on, uh, they were quite uh, liberal in their interpretation. He says to them, Is not this why you are wrong? Because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. It's just an amazing statement. You do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. He comes back to the authority of the Scriptures. And he says, and in addition to that, he makes these own staggering statements about his own um, handling of Scripture and, and of what, what he's teaching. He says, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking I'm really struggling for time because I'm gonna to have to I'm gonna to have to move quite quickly at this point. So how do we how do we uh, engage with scripture? I think first of all, and this might surprise you, scripture was written in order to be heard. How do we know that? Because eighty percent of people were completely illiterate. In fact, in the countryside, which most people lived in the country, it was 90%. The only engagement they would have with Scripture would be hearing. And therefore, reading Scripture and hearing it are crucial 
It's very surprising. We don't, we don't actually do this today. We, we tend to read quietly to ourselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but I tell you, a much more powerful thing is to do this, is to stand up. You probably need to do this on your own. To fill your lungs and to read. And I, I, I often tell people to do that. And I, uh, over the... Over time, I've received a number of emails from people who've, who've said, basically, um, well, I did what you said. I stood up and I started to read dramatically and the whole... Here we are, I've got a quote here. Here we are. I was reading out the verse... Um, uh, I was reading aloud the verse that, uh, that you sent to me and as I read the words, it so impacted me, I could hardly finish. I've had a number of emails and people saying that to me. They have absolutely no concept that this is the way it works because we don't do it. I was once in a service where somebody, where the preacher got up and he said, I don't need to preach today because the person reading the reading has done it so brilliantly that you've already heard the message. He did actually go on to preach. <laughs> but, but the point is, that when Paul's writing his letters or when John or these others, they're right there engaging, they're, they're communicating energy, they're, they're, they're giving themselves and then making their points with, with passion. So I strongly recommend to you that you try this. You might want to shut the door <laughs> so nobody can hear you. But do it, just do it. And get into the Psalms and do the same thing. And don't read it the Psalm once and think, oh, that's enough for this week. No, no, you'll never get anywhere with that. Get into it and read it and read it and read it and read it and da da And then you'll find, just a moment, this is, this is different. This is really different. One of the most powerful things you can ever do, and I'm not lying and I'm not exaggerating, the most powerful things you can do is to learn Scripture. Memorize it. Learn it well. Not just, oh yeah, there's a psalm about walking in the valley of the shadow or something, I don't know. That's not learning Psalm 23. I, I challenge you on this. Learn it properly. Learn Romans 8, the great, great crescendo of Paul's argument of the great salvation work of God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met, wait for it, fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. This is about the Word and the Spirit. I could go on. Romans 8 is such a magnificent chapter. Learn it, and I can promise you it will change your life because it's changed mine. And I mean it. And you go and you have to, But you have to work at learning Scripture. It doesn't happen overnight. The only people who can learn Scripture like that are actors, I find. They're very, very good at learning. They understand exactly, when I teach like this, they understand absolutely exactly what I'm saying. And, uh, um, and it's, it's, it's just, um, it's so powerful. 
So I'm running out of time and I've got to stop in a moment. But uh, how do we engage with scripture? We, we hear it, we read it, we meditate on it, we learn it, we watch it, we sing scripture. We, um, we, we, we look at art depicting it, uh, the, the scriptures. We, above all, we obey it. Some, some people sort of spend all their lives reading scripture and never obey it. It's, that's when the power comes in, is when you start obeying it. Uh, it's fun. We study it. We learn how to handle difficult uh, pictures, uh, uh, difficult passages. And I've got about one minute, literally one minute, to tell you about my website. So uh, on my desk there, I don't think we're going to go. There we are. So there are, three, there are four sections here. I've done this on each book of the Bible, and there's different media on each section. The first section stage is... Um, uh, voilà, there we are. Go to Acts, and uh, there's a search function at the top. One Thessalonians, and uh, this is great. So new Christians who are being persecuted, and you click on the. Ah, uh, well done. That's good. Thank you so much. If you let's just look at the guide there. If you click on the guide uh, in the corner, bottom right, uh, guide actually at the top as well. Uh, we are. What do you need to know? Various information on each book there. The second one is the heart of the book, including what is effectively a commentary, or I don't like that word, so I don't use it. The heart uh, of the book, podcasts, questions, helping you to interact with with the key themes, the key points that Paul is making. Third section is living it. It's all about what we do. What is one Thessalonians telling us to do? And the final stage four is about... um, kingdom discipleship it's like the the place of the book in the wider context of kingdom discipleship now it is literally 8 30 and i must stop but uh i think we're going to have a short break looking around for matt he's nodding at me and then there's discussion groups now i've given you some questions here which i hope you will find quite stimulating one or two of them are quite tricky how would you use psalm 109 Psalm 109 is quite a difficult one, so just see what it's like. You might want to read it carefully. Well, you shouldn't, you'll need to. And then how do we handle Proverbs 26, 4 and 5? Have a look at it and see what's going on. Think about how to handle it. You see, God put it there, and it's there for a good reason, and I'm asking you to sort of search away and find, see what you can find, okay? What does Mark 8, 34 to 9, 1 tell us about the kind, how the kingdom of God comes? That is a crucial question today. Absolutely crucial. And lastly, is prophecy a sign for believers or unbelievers? And we'll see what you make of that. Okay, now I hope, I don't want to put anybody in an awkward place and feel awkward. Um, Please don't. But uh, this is a chance to have a bit of fun. And and then we'll have some Q&A afterwards and we'll take it from there. Matt. Give Nick a big round of applause. Thank you so much, Nick. Absolutely brilliant. So the question is going to remain on the screen. What we'd love you to do is just to, in your groups, uh, look up these passages, check out those questions, maybe take a photo of the questions on your phone if you need to, and uh, discuss some stuff, uh, discuss what's on these on this slide, and then in about 20 minutes we're going to come back together and think of some questions. Brilliant. Let's draw our discussions just to close. Let's bring it in. And uh, before we go around, Flo's going to go around with a, a mic for some Q&A in a second. But um, Nick, you've got us to discuss these 
uh, four passages, these yeah. four questions. Do you want to just sort of give us a, yeah. a quick sort of you know, overview of what you've asked us to chew over? Okay, well, so I, I hope you find that uh, fun and because uh, uh, it, it is great fun. It's lovely handling these things. Psalm 109 is a rant. And I hope you realize that. Um, uh, it's just an astonishing thing. And the fact that it's in the Bible is even more astonishing. And here's this guy, and his friend has gone and done something absolutely horrific against him. And he's absolutely livid, trying to justify himself. And there we are, it's in the Bible. Now the Jews understood these things much, much better than I think we do. Um, and, and what they would do is that... They had a system whereby if you were really upset on the Sabbath and you were just boiling, you'd go to the, <clears throat> the synagogue before the service started and you'd go to, the, as it were, the communion rail. I'm not quite sure what the equivalent is. And you would say your beef with God. And then you would go and sit down and join the worshippers. And there's a sort of place for that. The Bible incredibly respects that. God is big enough to carry that. In fact, the very fact that Psalm 109 is in the Bible shows us that there is a place that we need to use Scripture like that. Because there's a place for it. As long as it's not the only thing that happens. As long as we stay in the worshipping community... And our focus in the worship is to worship God. Now, there's lots more I could say, but I'm not going to. How should we handle Proverbs 26, 4 to 5? Now, if you look at those two verses, you will see that in the first verse, you're told to handle the fool, the idiot, in a certain way. And in the very next verse, you're told to do precisely the opposite. What on earth is going on? I have spoken to people on six, seven-figure salaries who have told me that nobody ever realized it, and it was a complete blunder by the people editing the Bible. Incredible. It wasn't a blunder at all. What's going on? Anybody want to give me an answer? <laughs> no, I, I won't put you I, I'll tell you, look. Think of it. If I tell you a, a, a proverb, out of sight is out of mind. Okay? It's true, isn't it? Out of sight is out of mind. It's true. You don't see something, you don't worry about it. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. If you, somebody's not in your life, you think about them and you become fond of them. There are two proverbs that we have which actually say two almost opposite things. And actually there's a whole lot of others as well. There's a whole lot of Proverbs. See, a proverb states a truth, but it's not saying this is the only truth. Actually, there's another proverb which says something which is complementary, which balances, which we hold together. Now, again, there's lots more, and I want to give you a chance to ask questions. So, but we've got something like that going on. You see, in the Bible, the, the, the people who collected the... Um, 
the, the Proverbs together, and there are different collections in Proverbs, and you can see the structure in different places. But they put those together to make us think, to push us a bit. Say, come on, think this through. It's deliberate because we are to be intelligent in the way we handle Scripture. We're to think. We're to let the, the Scriptures provoke us and push us. And actually, very often as we do that, we get so much deeper into Scripture. Okay, next one. What does Mark 8, 34 to 9, 1 tell us about the kingdom when the kingdom of God is coming? Then he called the crowds to him, along with his disciples, and said... If anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Anyone who is ashamed of me and of my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, wait for it, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come. With power. Amazing. <laughs> Simon. <laughs> What's that all about? Where does it start and where does it finish? It starts with discipleship. He calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, Take up your, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It ends with the kingdom of God coming with power in our lives. There is a process there. And these verses are at the junction of Mark's gospel. It's just after this great um, the, the verses I was talking about. The Messiah. You're the Messiah. No, no, no right. Thank you. You've got that one. Now we're going to the cross. No, no, you're not. Big thing with, with Peter. And then he says that. And what happened a while later, they were in Jerusalem and the kingdom of God came with power. What is it saying to us today in 2023? It's saying that the kingdom of God comes with power when the disciples, you and I, deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. These verses are the center of the whole teaching of discipleship in the New Testament. They're crucial verses. Okay, bit of a preach on that one. Is prophecy a sign for believers or unbelievers in 1 Corinthians 14? Now, here we come into some very, very, very fascinating water. Let's just read it out. 1 Corinthians is a letter where Paul, and you're going to totally miss the point if you don't understand this, Paul is answering the questions that the Corinthians have raised in their letter. He says it specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verse 1. Now, about the questions you raised in your letter. And he goes on to talk about them. One, two, three, four. And he introduces each subject with the phrase, now about this. Now about this, chapter 12. Now about spiritual gifts. Da, da, da. And when he's talking about spiritual gifts, 12, 13, and 14, he comes into this section. And let me read this out. All the way through 1 Corinthians, he has been criticizing the church. That's a rather hard, aggressive word. That's, he's, he doesn't criticize them. He loves them. And that comes across. But he's, he's, he, he's getting really worked up with them because they're childish. And that is a word which he, he, he keeps saying, I couldn't address you as adults, you were just infants in Christ, I can't give you spiritual food, you're just not even ready for it, you just need, you always, and it just goes on and he goes on. And in chapter 13, the one that we all read at school all the time, you know, this sort of thing, uh, he says... When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Have you ever wondered what on earth he was talking about in the middle of that chapter on love? Well, he comes to the point, you see, he makes that point there. And then he, in, in chapter 14, verse 20, he says this. Now, this is really where he boils over. He says this, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. And then... This is what follows. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign for, un for believers, not for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. I believe that at that point he is once again quoting from their letter. That is the Corinthians' comment to him. Why do I think that? First of all, because it doesn't say it in the law. In the law it says, but it doesn't say that. Secondly, it says it in the, first of all, it says it in the prophets. Um, it's actually Isaiah. Then there is this quotation, which happens to be a very bad quotation from the Septuagint, which is the, Jewish, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew. It's a very, it's a very bad um, translation, and it appears that they, that the teacher at Corinth has come up with this verse, found it, and is using it to sort of to, to communicate what they want to communicate. Um, because they think that speaking in tongues, verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. So we ought to be all, spend, you know, we ought to go into the streets and, you know, we go out there into um, outside into um, Baldwin Street and, and just you know, sing in tongues. And all these non-Christians will come to Christ. And Paul turns around and says, you silly idiots. And not, well, no, you're, they'll think you're absolutely mad. <laughs> and so Paul is quoting them and then immediately saying the opposite. In fact, this contradiction, because that's what it is, this contradiction is so, so clear that some translators have been so baffled by it because they're trying to say the whole thing's Paul that they've actually changed the text. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, writes Paul so brilliantly, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? 
But, and this is the brilliance, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in and everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, explaining, God is really here. And in the chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is actually 14, which is all about prophecy and tongues and intelligible preach and uh, speech and, and encouraging and building up the body through prophecy, Paul is giving an absolutely stunning example of what we ought to aim for with our prophetic messages so that the unbeliever comes in and the prophecy, the level of prophecy is so accurate and penetrating and the words are given and the guy says, God is truly here. And they're on their knees saying, I've got to follow you. I had no idea that this could happen. That is the example of where we should be aiming for in our prophetic ministry. Praise God. Now, I'm beginning to preach again. <laughs> you see what's going on? Sorry, Matt. Uh, you take over. I, 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 I don't let it Are you all right, sir? Uh, yes. I mean, I suppose on, what I'm on. saying is the reason I raised this question is, look, once you see what's really going on here, it suddenly it throws the whole thing into perspective. And instead of a very awkward thing where you think Paul's is going this and then the opposite here and what this muddle, are we meant to be doing this or that, you know, confusion, which has meant it been uh, pertained for so long, there is actually logic, convincing, um, sense to the whole thing and then if you apply it to that you can actually apply it to other parts in these chapters these particular chapters at the end of 1 Corinthians and you suddenly realize this is the most brilliant bit of logical argument it all comes together it's all consistent it's all brilliant Paul was the most brilliant writer and friend and pastor and theologian, and church planter, and missionary. He was not an idiot, and he is not a misogynist. He's not. He's telling, in 1 Corinthians, he's telling the men to stop bullying the women. Now, there's a lots more I can say on that. But, Come uh, back for week three. Come back for week three. And in 1 Timothy, he's telling the women not to bury the, bully the men. Right, over to you. Okay. Brilliant. Okay, um, time for questions. So hands up. Flo's going to run around. Uh, be bold, be brave. Um, any questions you've got? Hands up right now. Flo's going to run around. Come on. You must have a question. Yes, right at the back. Ben's got one. Here we go. Here we go. Come on, Flo. <laughs> sorry, I just get to preach all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, uh... It's fine. Ben. <laughs> yeah, so Genesis is a, a complicated one, particularly in, say, the creation story. Um, when you read through the creation story, do you see that as being uh, metaphorical, talking about God created everything? Here is just some aspects about that. Do you see it to be exactly literal? This is the direct order. Or do you see it to be uh, literal in a way that we just can't comprehend at the moment? Uh, or do you see it in another way? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. It's a very important one, and lots of people ask that question. I think the thing to do is to let scripture speak for being scripture. I think we need to read it and listen to it and understand the nature of the literature. Very often we get things wrong in scripture because we, under, we interpret prophecy in a sort of historical, whatever. So, so the first thing is to listen to it. Um, secondly, I think we should respect our differences. Some people will say it's literal. Some people will say, no, this is, it's all about God creating the world, but this is a picture that's being told 
to explain um, how he created the world. I would, I would emphasize one point. I would say that it, he, um, uh, the, the, the early chapters in Genesis are about, uh, not, it's not a scientific description of how the world is made. I don't think that was the intention at all. Although some people will think that. I respect that, but, but I don't think so. I think it's a... Um, I, I think the, 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 what comes through those chapters is this incredible creation of God, the sort of person that God is. The sevens are very important in terms of Jewish understanding, the, the Sabbath thing. And then there's also the whole thing of what is man, what is woman, what is work, what is sin, what is the fall. Um, all these things are big. And what is marriage? And all these things are, are, um, are highlighted. Um, but I'm not going to uh, be evasive. I'm going to tell you the answer that uh, some people may, here may disagree with me, but I personally don't think that we should understand it in terms of a strict seven-day creation. Sorry, six-day creation, actually. That's what I'd say. I personally don't think that is what is being said. I think this is a picture of what's going on. I think the chapter one is deliberately constructed in a different way to chapter two. Um, I personally, anyway, we could say a lot more. Does it, do, do I, am I answering your question? I, I hope I've said some helpful things. Um, Thanks, Nick. Hands up for another question. Come on, guys. Yeah, um, when like chatting with friends that aren't Christian yeah. um, and they ask about the relevance of the Bible today have you got any um, top tips or thoughts around sort of explaining why it is relevant or why we feel like, how has it lasted 2,000 years etc it's a good question thank you I think I would point them straight to Jesus and say look at, the, look at his influence in, throughout history I think I would point towards the, um, uh, let's use this illustration. If you're an artist and you're a serious artist and you want to paint a picture of, of purity, of perfection, you've got, if you're really taking that seriously, you've got to, at some stage, consider Jesus Christ because he has the moral authority of who he is and what he's done. And anybody, and you look at, go through the Uffizi, uh, for example, as my family and I did a year or two back. Um, you've just got gallery after gallery after gallery after gallery of the cross and the crucifixion. And you've got this brilliant Renaissance art. And it's all focusing on the purity and this extraordinary thing that Jesus Christ has done. Now, basically what I'm saying is that you, we can't properly explain this world without having a good, thorough look at Jesus. And you look at his statements, you look at his life, you look at the, the, the pure beauty of his character, you look at the way he influences um, people all over the world. I mean, that quotation I read at the beginning, he, he, and the way the church is growing all over the world and the way it's growing in persecuted countries and the way that um, it, you, you can't get away from this. And I, I, would, I would be steering them in that direction. I, I hope I've been able to say a few helpful things there. I, I, yeah. 
Thumbs Thank up you. Movies. Good question. Brilliant. Got another question over there? Hey, um, yeah, so when you're looking at elements of the Bible which uh, maybe today are slightly more controversial or difficult to deal with um, and kind of say society is going in one direction and, you know, depending on your viewpoint, things are in another direction or whatever. If you're looking at the Bible and trying to point people to the Bible to sort of discuss that sort of thing, where's a good resource to go for like a clear, informed view on the context of those areas, maybe where the controversies exist? that isn't, you don't need a theology degree to understand if that sort of makes sense. Do you see where I'm going? Because you can read a book and it sort of will drive that person's particular agenda, but if you want something that's maybe not neutral but reliable that you can go to and go, actually, what actually is going on here? Is there any resources that you'd recommend? If that makes um, sense? <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, don't you? <laughs> um, I'd like to point them to my website. But, but... <laughs> But it's not going to answer every question. Um, and the context in section one, there's quite a lot of detail on the context of each letter. But I think you're asking, you're going beyond that, I think. You're asking, um, where do we, how do we use scripture and, uh, to, to bring, to, and, and I get to assume that the person you're referring to, your sort of imaginary person genuinely wants to find out about the Bible. I mean, there, there is a real genuine sort of, you know, I'm prepared to actually read it, for example, you know. And I would usually start with John's Gospel. I find that people relate to that, although in different contexts, other Gospels are also, I mean, if you're a Jew, then Matthew's Gospel is going to be probably the one you go for. If um, Anyway, I, I could look at it that. But let me just say one thing. One of the most exciting movements that's developing at the moment is the discovery study group or discovery I maybe I haven't got the title right but it's where people meet together just to read the bible together very very simple questions and it's it's proving to me an extraordinarily effective uh, way of forming of bringing people to Christ and starting churches in really remote places. And one of the things that's happening, I think you may be aware of this, is that in Muslim countries, many people are meeting the Lord in dreams and, um, and, then, and then getting into, um, becoming Christians, they're committing their life to Christ, they haven't got a clue what it's about, but there's some form of commitment there. And they're meeting together in other discipleship groups with Muslims from people, Christ, believers from Muslim backgrounds. And they're doing these discovery Bible studies and they're learning how to be disciples together in community. And it's absolutely fascinating because there's no, there's no influence from outside. In fact, a number of people are so amazed by what's happening because it's happening in country after country after country that there are various studies going on, academic studies by missiologists as to what on earth is going on. This is extraordinary. And the reason that I'm citing all this is because it touches on your question. Is to how do we, uh, is to how do we get a bunch of people together and uh, and get them into scripture because that's where the power is, because people will. <clears throat> I have a friend of ours, Lucy uh, and and he does a lot of work in prisons and he just takes the stories of the Bible, sits down with prisoners and gets them talking about it, and uh, and it's amazing what comes out of that, and there is something, there is just something so powerful about just getting people into scripture. And, and getting them to engage, because then the Holy Spirit takes over. And you've got this part, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it just happens, 
You don't have to make it happen. It does happen. Jesus said, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And, and you get, that's why... Anyway, anyway, I'm preaching again. So. <laughs> Great, let's have one final question. Uh, yeah, Emma. Um, you said that as a child you weren't taught how to read the Bible. What We have a 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy. What would you say the best way of getting him to read his Bible is? These are good questions. Thank you. Thank you for all these questions. I think one of the key things is you've got to realize that... Sorry, I'll start again. It's the wrong way of saying it. I think that a child, when a child is 12, they became an, become an adult. They've got 12 years, and then they become an adult. That's the Jewish way of looking at it. And I think something really changes at that stage. And one of the things Paul writes about in Ephesians, he says, he says to the fathers, but I'm sure it applies to both, father and mother, do not exasperate your children. And one of the things we who love Jesus and long and set ourselves high bars is we long for our children to have those high bars too. And I think that somewhere around that 13 age, we have to, we have to let go. We have to change in a way. But to answer your question more constructively... It's obviously going to involve depend on the different person, you know, who, who the person is and the sort of attitude and things. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, some children love getting into things, and if you can capture that and get into it, but also to respect them and respect their who they are and, and just let them find their level. There's much more I'd like to say. I don't know if I'm saying that very well. What do you think? Is that, is that any good? I think there's that. You know, obviously we want to encourage them to go to the youth group. Whatever. You know, we want to, we want to encourage that. Um, and yet there's a change that takes place. And, you know, we're obviously praying and praying and praying. One of the things I think we've got to focus on is not so much the activity, but life. Teenagers respond to authentic life when they see, when they, uh, when they see the reality of our faith. And um, that, that, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that. There's so much more to say. I, I probably said to Brilliant. Um, um, Nick, thank you so much. Should we give Nick a big, big round of applause? I'm going to ask Nick just to, um, to pray for us as we finish tonight. Why don't we stand right where we are? Um, let's just bring all that we've heard, all that we're thinking, uh, just before God in prayer. And Nick will just pray for us as we leave, as we finish tonight. Um, Nick, thank you. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is the key prayer. He prays that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened. Because if, I mean, sorry, a little bit of a preach, but the point is that none of us have to be convinced about the advantage of going off to um, buy a lottery ticket. 
you know, I don't know if it's your usual practice, because we know there's a massive sum of money at the end. The point is, if you can see, if the eyes of your hearts are open, you go for it. That's the point. That's why he says, you know, the eyes of your hearts. And the three things you need to see, the hope, the inheritance, and the power that are in Christ. If you see it, you go for it. So I'm going to pray for that, okay? Father, we pray. We just bless you, Lord. We bless you for who you are, Father, that you're a God who speaks. Thank you for speaking. Thank you, Lord. We're not in darkness. Lord, you've spoken, and we're so, so grateful. We're so grateful for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit who, who reminds us of what Jesus has said and guides us and has fellowship, leads us into fellowship with you. Thank you, Father. Father, that's what we want to say tonight. We say thank you to you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And uh, I want to pray Paul's prayer for all of us, every one of us, me included. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we'll see what you've given to us in Christ, the hope our certain future with him, our inheritance in the kingdom, and the power that raised Christ from the dead. Father, open our hearts, open our minds, transform us, Lord, through the, through the renewing of our minds. And may the Bible just sing and dance, and your words have a leading place in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, Lord burn within us like you did on that road um, with those guys coming back from um, uh, Emmaus. Burn in our hearts, Lord. And I want to pray specifically for, these, uh, for all who have been given, already been given a gift of teaching, that, Lord, your anointing will be upon them, that your spirit will rest on them, that they will, go ex- they will excel in the gift of teaching. That some of them, some of you will be, will be just, you'll find your lives are just caught up in this. And you're just longing to teach people the wonders of this mighty salvation that we've been caught up to, into in Christ. Come Holy Spirit, bless them. Give them, a, give them a, such a desire for scripture. May they, may they love it. May they feed on it. I bless them Lord in your name. Lord, raise up and send out laborers into the harvest field, we pray, for the glory of Jesus Christ in his name. Amen. 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 Nick, thank you so, so much. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. What, What a start. That was just week one. Do check out Bible for Life.